Today's episode of Keeping It 1600 is brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. If you enjoy basketball, you need to check out the Ringer NBA show, where every week, the Ringer's Chris Vernon hosts an all-star cast of Ringer staffers, NBA players, front office personnel, and more to discuss all things happening in the NBA. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes by going to itunes.com slash the ringer or find it wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to Keeping It 1600. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Uh, today on the pod, we have senior editor of the New Republic and the host of the Primary Concerns podcast, Brian Boitler. Uh, and this is it. This is the last pod of, of 2016, Dan. I know. What a year, 2016. <laughs> I'm, recording, I'm recording live from Duxbury, Massachusetts, uh, where I'm with uh, Emily's, uh, it's Emily's grandmother's home. So thank you to uh, Harriet Chapman for, for giving us her house today. Oh, great uh, shout out for yeah. the future grandmother-in-law. That's right, and uh, Emily's parents are here too. I got the whole black family, so oh, that's that's great. Yeah, and I'm just sitting here with some Dunkin' Donuts, which is great because I'm back in Massachusetts. <laughs> I mean, don't they have Dunkin' Donuts in LA too? Uh, yeah, it's in Santa Monica. It's hard to go there. Oh, um, I mean, it might, it might as well be in Mexico for God's sake. It's a it's a real struggle from West <laughs> yeah. Hollywood, just going from one elite bubble to the next. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so quite a year. We're gonna do a little. We're gonna do a little year in review today. Uh, and talk sort of about larger strategy going forward. Uh, we we, ha- we started talking about whether we wanted to hit all the Trump tweets from late, but decided, fuck that. <laughs> it's just so, it's so tiring. I mean, I... He's the, basically just like whining and bitching about the, <clears throat> the, about the popular vote and how big his win is right now. That's like all he's doing on Twitter. It's Well, the problem, it's the timing too, because like West Coast life is superb. I highly recommend it. it the weather is much better. There's great food, lots of places to go. We basically live under Obama Obama policies out here. But yeah. but the timing, like I wake up at like, you know, early and I like rub my eyes and I look at Twitter and Donald Trump has done something insane. Like it's so bizarre that I had to text you earlier this week to ask you if I dreamt that Donald Trump trolled Bill Clinton on Twitter and then they had to Twitter fight about it. <laughs> like, like cause that didn't seem possibly real in my half asleep mode. It's so we're, we're not going to go through them. It's too exhausting. It's going to be a long four years if we have to read all of Trump's tweets once a week. Well, and, and now he is about to start actually doing stuff right in January. He will be making policy. He will be taking actions and we won't have like conjecture, speculation, and random tweets to talk about as much. We'll have actual actual consequences. Oh, but this of is which most into... of us most of us are scared of. But yeah, uh, yeah that's what's going to happen. We'll just like get deep into the. We'll do a deep textual analysis of his Medicare privatization plan once a week. It'll be awesome. Get excited, guys! Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. So let's talk a little bit about the Democrats and um, our party's strategy moving forward in the Trump era. Um, <laughs> I know this is York- a, this is a podcast is audio, but did you do air quotes around strategy when you said that? I did. You, <laughs> yeah. if you can't see through the microphone, but I'm rolling my eyes. Yes. Um, <laughs> so there was a David Leonard piece in the New York Times the other day uh, entitled "Democrats Had a Knife and the GOP Had a Gun." Basically, he contrasts uh, how, how Obama and McCrory, Pat McCrory, uh, who was the governor of North Carolina, who lost to Roy Cooper, uh, dealt with this election. And so it's like, you know, Obama didn't use the CIA's Russia findings to go after Trump directly. And McCrory pushed through a discriminatory redistricting law to try to win seats. And Obama's tried to engage in a peaceful, productive transfer of power, whereas McCrory and the GOP in North Carolina stripped the new governor of all his power. So it's like, you know, it's another version of the Democrats are too nice and the Republicans play mean. And so the Republicans always win. Um, So. I guess to to start, why haven't Democrats modeled uh, Republican behavior over over the years? Why haven't we learned from Republicans on this? I have I have my own thoughts, but I, I throw it out to you first. Okay. Um, I I think I don't think we should. Part part of this is we look back and think Democrats are like there's this natural view that Democrats are wimps and Republicans are tough. And Barack yeah. Obama, who is a very nice, thoughtful man, also kick the crap out of them every time there was a big fight between the Democrats and the Republicans. And, you know, on things like the shutdown and debt ceiling, 
um, in 2013, whatever year that was, may, you know, basically made them crawl to the White House on their knees and beg for him to let them out of their problem. Um, so it, like Democrats win a lot. We've won the popular vote in almost every like whatever the number of six last seven elections. But the like the question that David Lenhart's asking is. Republicans are willing to burn down or he's saying is Republicans are willing to burn down government in order to accomplish their goals and Democrats aren't. And I don't like I don't believe like one view is Democrats are better people than Republicans. Um, I think most I think most Democrats are better people than Trump, um, but I don't I don't think it's a pretty uh, broad brush to paint with. But Democrats believe in government as a solution to problems. So burning it down in order to gain power runs counter to what we believe yeah. in. And so it's yeah, not the, part the of Republic, our... The Republican strategy isn't just a strategy. It's an ideology. <laughs> so it fits, you know, I mean, like their their whole belief is that government doesn't work. And so if you make it that the government, if you make it so that government doesn't work, then you've proved your thesis correct. Yeah. And look, I worked for Tom Daschle during the Bush years when he was the Senate majority leader, minority leader. And the view at the time was the Senate Democrats imposed these terrible, quote unquote, terrible you know, obstruction tactics to slow the Bush agenda down. And, you know, they weren't as successful as they'd want to be. But, you know, the parties seem tougher in opposition than they do in governing when they have control of power for all the obvious reasons. Yeah. I mean, if you if you asked our Republican friends about this, they would say, well, if you're talking about, you know, procedural tactics to kind of gum up the works or, you know, sort of extraordinary action when you have the levels of the levers of power, uh, they would point to Obama's executive actions they would point to uh, eliminating the filibuster for appointments. They would point to passing Obamacare through the budget reconciliation process, right? Like there's a number of things that Barack Obama did that the Republicans screamed overreach about, Oh, you know? Yeah, the, so, the, whole, the pen and the phone, you know? And I the, think yeah. one, of the ex- one of the examples that David uses in his piece is the, and you cited, is not coming out and, saying during the election that the Russians wanted Trump to win and that somehow that was a decision where the president put country over party or, you know, you know, whatever some objective view of what the right thing is over the expedient thing or the more politically uh, appetizing option. And my caveat is I have not talked to anyone in the White House about the decision making into that, those are classified discussions. You know, we are no longer cleared for those things. So I am just speculating as a random podcast host. But it also is not obvious to me that the right political decision, if even if you were saying, I want to do whatever is most likely to help Hillary Clinton win, I don't think the president coming out and saying, I have one of my intelligence agencies s- says that Trump that the Republicans want to elect Trump would have been the politically smart thing to do either. Obama has new conspiracy theory. Yeah. <laughs> Russia the to F- elect Trump. That would have been yeah. all over Fox News. There were like some reporters would have handled it responsibly, obviously. He would have been accused of politicizing intelligence. No Republicans would have backed him up, as they as we know now. Mitch McConnell yeah. said, I won't back you up. So I mean it's... it wouldn't have been an unfair accusation to say he was politicizing intelligence to do that. Like right. that. Right. I mean, that would have been especially if you have the FBI, which leaks like a sieve telling The New York Times that their their evidence says that that's not what Russia was doing. Like it would have been a massive political shit show. The Clinton people would have been like, what the fuck is Obama doing? Why is he making this so much harder? Um, So I think there was a little I think there's a slight oversimplification here, but it raises questions. It's. This idea is less interesting going backwards to look at decisions that were made and more interesting to think about how we... Oh, the other thing I'd say on this is the other example David uses is, well, Obama is helping the Trump transition. And right. like, what would the other option be? I'm not really sure. Because like, what is not an option is, like, even if we had this idea to do a Pat McCrory-style um, move, that's not something we could do. We don't control Congress. You know, it's not something that's actually feasible. So I don't think Obama would do that even if it was, but that's not, he's not choosing not to do that. Um, 
No, the other but option is he could have he could have gotten up at press conferences and said like, you know, I'm I'm handing over power to Trump, but he doesn't represent our values. The next president is a bad person. Everyone should watch out. Blah blah blah. We're gonna fight this. So like, I, this is not really in Obama's personality to do such a thing. But let's play it out. So if he did that, what does that achieve? Uh, that I guess that's the question I keep coming back to. Not like like what I mean. What what uh, McCrory did in North Carolina had achievable results, right? Like the result was that that Cooper was actually stripped of some power because he passed these laws, right? He was able to, like you said, Obama doesn't have congressional majorities. He can't pass any laws, right? So he can speak out. He can use the bully pulpit. But I'm not sure what that would achieve positively except making people even more afraid and angry at Trump than they already are. I don't know that it changes any minds, right? Right. And it probably does something that is damaging to the party in the short term because Obama is the most popular politician in the country. Full stop. Right. Yes. And if he were to, if he were to diminish himself on the way out the door in order to make people like you and me feel better because he would be reflecting our views by being angry and, you know, et cetera, then he would hurt him, diminish his standing and be a less effective surrogate voice going forward. And so there's a little checkers and chess thing here, too. Um, yeah, but it's also I think it is sometimes there are the right and the wrong thing to do and the right thing to do as a outgoing president is to make for the country is to help the ease the transition for your for your successor because people get hurt right regular people even people who voted for Hillary Clinton will get hurt if the Trump presidency is a disaster right and so if you can sort of help around the edges on that, then that's probably, then that's probably the right thing to do. So back to the, your forward looking question, which is what should we do differently? What should Democrats learn um, from all these Republican procedures and tactics that to sort of gum up the works? Um, I mean, I, look, some of the options here are, you know, they start repealing Obamacare. I don't know. I, do you filibuster it? Right. Do you start do you start leading a bunch of filibusters? I'm trying to think what other tactics and, and, and strategies the Democrats have here to um, really oppose Trump, I'd say, at least in the next two years. OK, I'll, I'll give you a election. couple. I'll give you a couple hypotheticals. Right. One is if you would you filibuster a Supreme Court nominee all the way to the end? Right. Now, the, the, what likely happens here is they just change the filibuster rules, but let's just hypothetically, would you do for to Trump what the Republicans did to President Obama for the last nine months on the Scalia nomination for the this, for the nominee for the Garland nomination for the Scalia slot? Again, would you yeah, say I, again? Well, we'll just, again, we'll, I would again, yeah. I would think to myself, OK, one, who is the nominee um, is it, because if it's a nominee in the mold of. I don't know, like a Roberts or an Alito or a Scalia, even. Um, we've had those on the Supreme Court justice on the Supreme Court before, so they would not be unprecedented. Um, you know, if it's like someone completely fucking crazy, which is not out of the realm of possibility with Donald Trump at all, <laughs> then maybe you do. But then you think to yourself, I mean, you offered a hypothetical about, let's say the filibuster couldn't be revoked. But my question again would be, if could the filibuster actually keep up keep the nominee off the court and i don't know that it could because i think they would get rid of the filibuster at that point you know like in a world where in a world where we knew that a filibuster could actually keep a trump nominee off the court for four years who was really 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 bad i don't know maybe <laughs> okay here i just don't know a, what that gets us all right would you right okay that's fair would you then let's do let's do another hypothetical let's say ruth bader ginsburg retires or or any any progressive justice retires in oh, yeah. the third year of the Trump presidency do you do the same thing that we decried in yes. two yes I agree yeah I, I would yeah okay they did Next it one. they did it they did it and that tips the balance of the court and Trump is a as a dangerous president and yes and they paid no price for it and absolutely now people say okay well you don't really care about the institution of the supreme court and now you're leaving it without a seat well it's the third year hopefully we elect a democrat and then let's see what happens okay next hypothetical would you use the debt ceiling to protect obamacare 
No. No. I would not. Yeah, I that, that is one where I am. Uh, I, and it's there's a lot of people who are going to be confused about this because I don't think anyone realizes how fucking terrifying it was, except for you and I and the people who are in the White House when we came close to breaching the debt ceiling because of the Republicans. Yes. Aside from nominating and then uh, facilitating the election of Donald Trump, nothing the Republican Party has done has been more irresponsible than what they did around the debt ceiling. And if you breach the debt, I mean, I, I was drafting the speech with Geithner that Obama was going to have to give when it looked like we were breaching the debt ceiling about how we were going to have to start prioritizing payments because the United States of America would eventually run out of money. <laughs> Not right away when you breach it, but that would start, you know, global economic catastrophe is what results when you breach the debt ceiling. And that's how yeah. close they came to that. So, yeah, yeah to protect I, Obamacare, like Obamacare is unbelievably important and I would do almost anything to protect it, but not cause a global financial crisis. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that that is I mean, it's hard to explain to people, but it is an economic atomic bomb, um, which, and, by the way, there's a theme to these things. And this is how the Republicans are getting away with so much. It's hard to explain to people. They have found they have identified Trump has done this, especially Trump has identified certain norms not laws, but norms and things that are hard to explain. And he's exploited them <laughs> and, he's explo and he's exploited people's misunderstanding and lack of knowledge on certain things to just go ahead and do stuff. <laughs> Anything you can see in the world that's either like a norm that's not a law, that's just like something people have followed for years because it's tradition or something that's really hard to, to explain. Those are the things that will go away the quickest. Would you, I mean, this is only quasi related, but would you be willing to if, let's say we had the white house again okay mm -hmm. would you be willing to follow some of trump's uh behavior towards towards the press like just in terms of like access like no right like not answer questions like they do um you know even be more using the bully pulpit to sort of shame them <laughs> i mean how many times did i want to shame the press when we were in the White House from that's the, the main, That's the main reason you started, you joined this podcast, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, no, look, I mean, some what he's done at the rallies, how he's like incited, uh, forget about violence against the press, obviously not, but like calling them disgusting, pathetic, like you don't have a candidate do that ever. You don't have, a, you know, it's just, that's ridiculous. Um, some of the access questions are a little bit different. You know, like we're still arguing about Oh, the president did YouTube interview, you know, interviews with YouTube stars. And he went on The Tonight Show instead of holding one more press conference. Like, I don't have as much I don't have as much uh, concern about that kind of stuff, you know. Um, but yeah, no, I'm not, no, no one's getting rid of the White House briefing. No one's not having press conferences for 150 days. Like, I think that stuff's ridiculous. I don't again, I don't know what that gets you. <laughs> I think if there's one thing that I think that Hillary Clinton campaign could have learned is I think if Hillary had done more press conferences and talked to the press more, um, they still would have found all kinds of things to 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 attack her for, for sure. But they did that anyway. So maybe if Hillary was a little more, you know, just kind of talked to them every day and sort of built up that relationship, maybe it would have helped. Maybe not. But I, I tend to err on the side of. Uh, more access for the press and just and talking to them more even as so, even as someone who complains about the press all the time i still think uh, talking to them more is better would you like one of the rules when you become a flack um you know for a candidate or a member of congress or the white house is never lie right they always say never lie um yeah like you don't have to answer the question but don't lie because that'll fundamentally change your like you could that you'll ruin your career if you if you are caught lying um, that the Trump people That's sort lie. of out the window. <laughs> yeah. The Trump people lie all the time. Right? I don't know that Kellyanne Conway has ever said something truthful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, that's an exaggeration. But like if someone if someone just did a PolitiFact on her interviews alone, it would like break the meter. It's absurd. Yeah. I mean, or like. Just lying there. It clearly if you there are two things that Democrat that not even Democrats, Democrats and Republicans have believed in recent years in regards to how you deal with the press is one. Don't lie. Right. May, you know, po politicians shade the truth, but it's usually in the way of trying to put the best spin 
on a question that they possibly can without crossing a line of actually lying. That is 99% of what yep. happens, or they get their facts wrong, right? Or they cherry pick facts, right? But the Trump people just lie, straight up lie with, and there's no, seems to be no penalty for that. And the second right. is their press staff just doesn't answer questions. Just don't, right. right? Tell us about, you know, Eric Trump's, you know, million dollar elephant killing fundraiser and the, you know, like no response, no response. What about, you know, explain what Trump means by this? No response, no response. And it's not clear that there, at least in the short or medium term, is a penalty for that either. No, because the penalty is shaming them in the press. And yeah. uh, and I mean, I think like Molly Ball wrote a story about this in The Atlantic early on in the in the campaign that the quality that probably most helped Trump in this entire race is shamelessness. When you have no shame, when you are when you when it, when it when you are not afraid to be shamed whatsoever and you can feel no sense of shame, then any kind of punishment that can be inflicted on you through the press, through public opinion, it just it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I, and so like they can lie to the press and they cannot talk to the press and they cannot answer questions and the press can scream about it. But what the Trump people know is that the press isn't trusted by the public. And so that if the press screams about them uh, lying, then it's a wash. It doesn't really matter that much. I think my main takeaway from this discussion as I sort of think about how Democrats should conduct themselves is we should fight hard and we should be tough, but we should be, we win when we inspire. Yes. Right? We should be the best Democrats we can be and not a, <laughs> and not a paler shade of Trump Republicans. And no. And I think the why that it's matters. Not, it's not about it's not about anger and fight. Everyone's it, it, the the word is always fight anger, you know. But it's like I remember when um, Axelrod was talking to POTUS in those debates against Romney and and trying to to fix the performance, which had gone quite awry. And it was like, <laughs> and the advice was, you know, don't fight Romney and don't fight his policies and don't fight because you're angry that he attacked your record fight on behalf of the people that you represent, you know? And I actually think that's a good thing to keep in mind. Like so many of the fights that Democrats have picked with Trump is it's like Trump says something mean and so we're mad and this is outrageous, blah, blah. Like I think that we can't for like we have to start fighting and representing people that could possibly be hurt by Trump's policies, right? And that's not just our people. That's the people who voted for him too. Right. Because his policies, um, economic policies, social policies, national security policies are potentially going to hurt a lot of Americans from a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different walks of life. And we have to be their champions, whether they whether they're with us or not. We have to show that we're willing to fight for those people. I think that I think that's right. I mean, it's also you have to think about how politics plays itself out and Democrats win when more people turn out. And people yeah. and this is a true or one real takeaway from this election is people turn out to vote for someone. They don't necessarily turn out to vote against someone. And so Republicans win if it gets messy and dirty and feels like everyone hates each other because then only reliable like the standard the people who turn out always is going to advantage Republicans. It's that extra that Obama coalition voters who came out in 08 and 12. That's the difference for Democrats. And we have to give them something. We have to give them a reason to come out and Republicans don't. They with they their job is to give our voters a reason not to come out by making every and this is the true the true genius of the crooked Hillary attack, which is it didn't she didn't feel they diminished people's enthusiasm for her and therefore they didn't bother to wait in lines and now we have Donald Trump as president. Great. Do you know you know what's both funny and and really sad about this conversation is I feel like you and I and a bunch of original Obama people could have been having it in uh, 2007. <laughs> and it's and it, it in fact is the conversation we had in 2007 when Barack Obama was getting ready to run for president, which is like, people are sick of Washington. People think politicians don't tell the truth. People want inspiration. People want change. People want someone to run against the system. People don't want someone they see as part of the system, right? Um, all of these lessons that we learned in 2008, it's almost like, 
every time I look back at the selection, how wrong we get it, I'm like, we of all people should have seen it coming because we were on that kind of campaign. It was the Bizarro campaign where Barack Obama was inspiring and inclusive and <laughs> welcoming all that. But it was in, in some ways um, a mirror image of the Trump campaign in terms of running against a broken system. And, and people I are mean, people are still fed up with Washington and they're still pissed about it and they're still angry that nothing gets done. At least the, the, the perception is that nothing gets done, even though Barack Obama made what we believe is huge progress um, and did change a lot of people's lives because he didn't fix the world and change the world and fix inequality completely. Um, and the Republicans gummed up the works for however many years. There's still that frustration out there about politics. The thing that I think is really interesting about this is, and this is what I think I certainly missed in this election, is you look at the the state of the economy. You know, we just had like three and a half percent growth announced today. Unemployment's under five, and Barack Obama is at you know is at fifty five percent or so, depending on the poll on election day. That this would seem like an election that supported something in the neighborhood of the status quo, right? Like that. Like if you if you yeah. just put that into some computer algorithm, it would be it would suggest, um, you know, a democratic victory. What I I've taken away from this, both in the turnout numbers, that fact pattern around Obama's approval is some, and this is to the great credit of Obama, I think, or maybe just maybe I don't, I don't know how to think about it is I think despite being the person in charge of the political system for the last eight years, he is somehow on the minds of a decent number of voters remained apart from it. Yeah, where you well, can hate the system and hate, you know, politics and think it's screwing you, but still like Obama, even though he's in charge of it. And it, maybe that's a reservoir of goodwill towards because people, even those who don't support him, um, view him as a good person, you know, as like a good father, good husband, like feels like a normal guy. But he he exists. The reason why his approval numbers are better than every other politician is he he, he continues to float above the system. And it's I mean, this is a real challenge for the party going forward, which is, you know, who can tap into the Obama coalition? Right. Who can? I mean, right. the the drop off in uh, I saw this in uh, one of our data journalist friends, but had. You know, the, just the tremendous drop off in counties and drop off in turnout in counties that or precincts that went plus 90 percent plus for Obama. Yeah. So and it's you know, these are, you know, theoretically should be hardcore Democrats who would care about any Democrat. But, you know, there's a five percent. I think it's like a five point four percent drop or something like that. I mean, um, a lot a lot of people attribute. Uh, this uh, Obama's ability to sort of float above the political system and and seem outside of it and be popular to like this. They attribute it only to this innate talent that Barack Obama has that somehow can't be replicated. And I, and I think what people don't realize is it took a lot of work for him to do that. And it wasn't yeah. always easy. You know, it's like he is an extremely talented politician for sure. And he is a wonderful human being. Right. We're biased. But um he was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And I, I keep thinking of the line that uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote in that um, the excellent uh, Atlantic piece, My President Was Black, which everyone should read. It's a, an excellent long read to end the year. But this, he said, you know, and he was talking about race, but you could you could say this for just about everything. For eight years, Barack Obama walked on ice and never fell. Like, you know, that was that that's that's pretty that's pretty right. And it was there were a lot of times when he came close to falling. And there was a lot of times in the in the 2012 election. I mean, that was fucking harder than 2008 because <laughs> he'd been president for four years. He wasn't necessarily seen as change. He was part of the status quo. The economy wasn't fixed yet. Um, and to beat Mitt Romney, uh, we can look back now and say, oh, Romney wasn't a good candidate. But that was a formidable challenge, you know, and it took incredible discipline on and he didn't do well in that first debate, it took incredible <laughs> discipline on his behalf to figure out a way to remain above the above the fray to show that he was still the guy you elected in 2008 who was fighting for people like this stuff does not come natural to him. And I say that because 
Democrats should not say, oh, Obama was some aberration that we can never replicate. You can replicate his success, but it just it takes a lot of work and it takes and it takes risks too. It takes not worrying about what, you know, Washington's going to say about you all the time and, you know, worrying about like what the editorial boards are going to say or what people on Morning Joe are going to say or all this bullshit <laughs> that everyone worries about. Like you got to take some risks and sort of let the chips fall where they may. I'm glad you got one last morning, last morning Joe hit in for, for the year, man. Yeah, one last yeah. for the year. Yeah, I, look, I think there's also a way. There's a, there are a ton of lessons to learn from this election. There's a ton of lessons to overlearn because you're seventy thousand votes and three states away from being a different situation. Yeah. And I think, I think Hillary Clinton would have been a very good president. Yes, that's why I supported her. Um, but she is probably the worst person to. That's a bad way to say it. She is an imperfect vessel for the forces that elected Barack Obama and a different candidate like potentially. And that was true, by the way, before the FBI, before Russia, before all of this. And we sort of knew it and we thought that she could win anyway, you know? And I think, like I said, I think, I think she ran, she did, she executed very well (laughs) in a lot of components of this campaign. And she had to deal with a lot of shit. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to ignore that uh, at all. But you're yeah, right. It's so, the die was cast before she sort of made the announcement in many ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I now go, I look back and think about whether there was a massive conspiracy of Republicans to say they supported her when she was Secretary of State, so she'd leave with like a seventy percent approval rating just to like trick her to get into the race, so they could immediately start hating her again. <laughs> well, and she and she knew. I mean, like if you if you read reports about this, she is a very self aware person, and yeah. she had doubts whether she would be. The, the right vessel for this from from the beginning just because of all the baggage she had again a lot of this is not her own fault <laughs> a lot of this is yeah. just what she's been through her life and what other people have done to her and sexism and everything else it's all there and yet you know we're uh we're in the real world here so <laughs> yeah and it's it's funny like she probably would have beat jeb bush pretty handily no i i think I, I yeah all of our never trump republicans friends would not agree with this but yeah what Jeb Bush wouldn't have been able to do is cast her as part of the Washington establishment. Yeah. I said through a lot <laughs> I mean, of He's the not election. of Washington, but he's still establishment. Right. You know? right. I said through a lot of the election that I thought she would beat Rubio in Kasich too, because I, th- I believed incorrectly that she would be able to get, more, you know, better turnout, um, you know, among some of the Obama voters. Um, I now think that is not the case. I think Kasich and Rubio probably would have both beaten her. Um, I think but- she would have beat Cruz. Yeah, I think, I mean, no one. I think because he's so intensely unlikable as a a person. In a different way than Trump is, right? Like, Trump's unlikable to us, but there's a fan club for Trump. (laughs) I don't know that there's a Cruz Cruz fan club out there. Yeah, I remember reading this one article about Cruz that was, like, about his roommate from Princeton and basically came down to he's the only person who likes Cruz. (laughs) And and he can't explain (laughs) it, and no one can explain why he likes Cruz. He's the one. Uh, So, yeah, it would have beat Cruz. I think definitely would have beat. I really think would have beat Bush. Um, I am not. I don't think would have beat Kasich or Rubio. Definitely would have beat Ben Carson. I'm very confident it would have beat Ben Carson. HUD Secretary Ben Carson. Um, uh, I know. Okay. Biggest biggest surprise. Let's end with a few quick ones. Biggest surprise of 2016, aside from the fact that uh, Donald J. Trump is about to be our next president. <sighs> to me, the biggest surprise is, or sort of the biggest revelation is the fragility of the emerging democratic majority. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously that's also why Hillary Clinton lost, but um, you know, it's clear that, you know, we overestimated um, how, how quickly the country was moving in one direction and made some strategic mistakes as a, as a result of that. Uh, mine is Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and here's why it's not Bernie's message, which I would have, if you would, if you just read me Bernie's message before the race, uh, and said, do you think this message will, uh, you know, attract a big following? I would have said yes. Right. Political and economic revolution and equality. It's, it's what, you know, Barack Obama has been talking about in some form or fashion for quite a while. Um, if you then said this message is going to be attached to a 75 year old socialist from Vermont who's been in Congress forever, <laughs> I would say, well, that doesn't really seem change enough for me. It doesn't seem outsider enough if we're talking about an outsider, you know? And it just goes to show that, and this is important for looking forward, that 
resume and who you are and what you look like and where you're from and how long you've been in Washington really aren't as important as the message itself, you know? And I think that's one mistake that Democrats often make is we lose an election, then we're like, who looks the part? Who's got the right resume for next time around? And I mean, I've said this before, but like, you know, John Kerry loses, everyone goes to John Edwards, and no one would have ever said, you know, Barack Obama from the South Side of Chicago was the answer to the Democrats' problems in 2004. And I say that because who the hell knows who's the savior for 2020, but it, the person's got to have the right message. Yeah, it's to me, I actually, I have a question for you, but one rebuttal to that. I actually think it's less the message than the messenger. You mean like they're like how they carry, like how comfortable they are in their own right. skin. Right, I think the most- I totally agree. I mean, this is not something you could like scientifically predict, but the probably the best predictor of political success, particularly in a presidential election, is the candidate who's most comfortable in their own skin. 100% agree. And, Bernie and, I hate Sanders, you, and authenticity is now overused because now people seek out how do I become more authentic, which is a yeah, completely which is crazy in, paradoxical question. <laughs> yes, which is which is particularly inauthentic. But it's right. Bernie Sanders was very comfortable being Bernie Sanders. He didn't try to change himself to run for president in, in so there would be two factors. One is comfort in your own skin, and related to that is willingness to lose. Yeah, and you know, like we did a lot of things that probably seemed insane be in the 2008 campaign because Obama was very comfortable losing. He does not like to lose at anything: golf, cards, anything. The little so if someone brings a little like Nerf basketball into the office, he doesn't want to lose at that either. Like he's very competitive, but. He would be he was going to be totally fine going back to his life. And so he was not he played to win, not not he didn't play not to lose. And that matters. But here's my question for you. Do you mm-hmm. think Bernie Sanders would have beat Donald Trump? Yes. Yeah, me too. I, I will say uh, I now was, I hate doing that because I hate I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be out of the predictions business and especially yeah. counterfactuals in the past are always fraught. So yeah. I, I guess I should say I don't know. But if we're just playing a game here, um, Looking at all the data and who voted and why and all the other stuff, I, I tend to think yes. I think there's a whole dump truck full of oppo on Bernie that would have been unleashed. That we, it's it's hard to tell how that would have been play, played, and he would have been painted as a socialist who did, you know, who stood up for Sandinistas and went to rallies and said, I mean, all that stuff would have happened. Um, so maybe not, but I, I tend to think yes. Yeah, I do too. I I swore up and down for a long time that Hillary was more electable than Bernie, and in the main driving force was I thought the socialism thing was going to be very hard to explain to a large group of voters who who exist outside the Democratic primary. Now, we since then the candidate who did win um, went on a racist attack against a sitting judge and 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 bragged about sexual assault and then was accused by 12 separate women of sexual assault. So it seems like socialism seems like a, like a, as David Axelrod would say, a pimple on the ass of progress. And so <laughs> great axism. Is, yeah. It's a great, great, it's almost incredibly as, it's almost, gross axism. Yes. It's almost as good as my other favorite axism, which is uh, he's about as subtle as a fart in a spacesuit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's good. And then what's the one about the monkey climbing up the pole? Oh, I don't know that one as much. There's something about cl- the monkey climbing up the pole and seeing his ass that I think X said on a Sunday show once, which uh, <laughs> got some got some real response from the Washington establishment. Um. Anyway, where were we on that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> How do we start but, talking about that? Basically, I think I now think that Trump, uh, that Bernie, really like I like I I think I was I I misread how this election would play out and well. It, one thing for sure going forward, it tells me, is uh, whether or not he would have won, which is something we can never know. Um, I'm done making arguments about electability. Just yeah. done. And you yeah. know what? Even when I like endorsed Hillary Clinton and I wrote a column about her, I did not say, even then, I was I did not say she should win because she's more electable than Bernie. I just liked her and liked her message better than Bernie. You know, whatever. Um, I think... I do never. I never want to talk about or worry about whether someone's electable or not. I want to talk about like, are they comfortable in their own skin? Is it? Do they have the right message? Can they inspire? Um, do I agree with them on their policy issues? And then see how it goes because we've learned now that electability is a silly argument. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If you if you had written a if someone had given you as a poli sci 
like midterm exam, like just with no name, just like all the things that involve Trump and said, is this guy electable? And you said, yes, you would have failed. Yep. Correct. Um, okay. I think, uh, I think, I think we're done uh, predicting for, for right now. Yeah. No, no more, no more. We, we don't, we're out of the prediction business. We're in the reflection until, business <laughs> until we do until 2017 yeah. starts and we do. Okay. Yeah. When we come back, um, we will have Brian Boitler from the new Republic uh, to do some more reflecting with us. Today's episode of Keeping It 1600 is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can. ZipRecruiter already has 9 million resumes you can search through in their database. You can add multiple people to your account to make it the most efficient for your team to find the best hire. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. ZipRecruiter is a search engine for finding and posting jobs. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy to use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. If you have any issues, ZipRecruiter's friendly support staff is ready to help. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. It's featured on Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, The New York Times, TechCrunch, and CBS. ZipRecruiter's website shows trending career fields, cities, and searches. Right now, Keep It at 1600 listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash 1600. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 1600. On the pod today, we have the senior editor of the New Republic and host of the podcast Primary Concerns, Brian Boitler. Brian, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? This is the podcast where we're going to solve everything, right? Fix, fix all the problems. This is it. That's today. And we've been, all right. we've been trying to get you on. We've been trying to get you on for a while, and we decided to save the best for last. This is the last podcast. Of you should have had me on like November sixth or something like that. That probably would have made the probably would have made the difference. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So. <laughs> um, okay. So, Brian, what? Uh, first, how are you feeling? What are you? Are you, uh, are you terrified? Are you angered? Are you emboldened? <sighs> we like to we like to ask our guests this. <laughs> so you you guys you guys caught me at a at a at a weird moment. Um, I I do, like tend to hoard my vacation days for the end of the year and then do like a half month sabbatical at the end of December. So at the exact moment, I am very relaxed. I have sleep in every day. Um, I'm not writing, um, so so I'm in, I'm I'm having a great time. Um, how <laughs> How's your the, Twitter like, diet? Na- <laughs> I, I I've, I've turned it down, but I haven't eliminated it altogether. There's too many hours in okay. the day to succumb to that temptation, um, and that, and that's where all the you know the stress and anxiety uh, starts to seep in. But I think like over the last you know six weeks or so, the the like the you know gnawing feeling in the in the pit of my stomach has given way to like eye rolling just about how how Trump has managed to scatter developments of his coming administration in a way that it, it's like a it's like a bit of a roller coaster like he'll, he'll make some un, un, ungodly awful appointment and then then the next one will be like okay maybe this is not so bad but then he'll like he'll, he'll flip it on you again and appoint someone even worse than you can imagine to an even more consequential job so it's like regular reminders that uh, that shit is getting real <laughs> Um, so one thing we were talking about earlier today was that um, mm-hmm. David Leonard Leonard piece from the New York Times, uh, Democrats had a knife and the GOP had a gun, uh, you know, which mm-hmm. is basically like, you know, Republicans in North Carolina have made all these moves to basically uh, strip Roy Cooper of all this power. And then on a national level, you know, we're sort of being too there's a da- there's a danger that we might be too nice and accommodating to Trump. What do you think? The, the Democrats need to do going forward? Like, how, how should they act towards Trump? So I think, so a, a lot of the, the, you know, concern on the left of center side of the spectrum about what Democrats might do in Congress um, to work with uh, or not work with Donald Trump stems from stuff that I think people are re- overreading a little bit. Like when Chuck Schumer says, if Donald Trump presents a good infrastructure bill, we'll help him pass it. That may or may not be true, but it's also probably said with the suspicion that 
the Trump GOP is not going to introduce a good infrastructure bill. So why why get out in front and say absolutely not until um, until you know until you have that, which is similar sort of to how Republicans behaved in, in 2008 and going into 2009. You know, they, they strung Democrats along negotiating health care reform, but but they pretended like they were going to be you know viable negotiating partners for months and months and months. And that all worked out very much uh, to their benefit in, in the long run. So if, if like, the strategy looks a little bit like that, um, I don't think there's going to be too much to worry about. I do think that just as a general matter, um, Republicans are a more procedurally extreme party, and Democrats are more prone to concerns about, you know, how is this going to look in the eyes of the media and the eyes of voters if I do something that's, like, rankly hypocritical um, and, and Republicans have kind of gotten wise to the fact that in basically no realm of politics does anyone in the voting public give a shit about hypocrisy. So I, I wonder <laughs> if there are going to be, you know, uh, purple state Democrats who decide to actually not do what Mitch McConnell did to Barack Obama on account of some higher principle that is, uh, is something that strategically they should be willing to jettison. Do you think for Democrats, this is a question of, you know, being afraid about what the New York Times editorial board and, you know, the quote unquote crooked media um, will say about it? Or the opposite view is Democrats believe in government and burning it down in order to win an election. It doesn't fit with who we are. Like, do you is this a question of just we are philosophically Democrats are philosophically handicapped here or we're just not tough enough? Well, I, I mean, I think you got to take that sort of on a question by question basis, right? Um, uh, when you know, I, I I don't know why Democrats spent so much time in 2009 thinking that maybe this long negotiating process in the Senate Finance Committee was going to produce bipartisan support when you know Republicans were kind of dropping out of negotiations and making impossible demands. It was clear that that just not was not a bill they wanted passed, and I don't think that Democrats should you know, look at bad legislation that they don't like and try to tweak it in ways to make it, you know, like if, if Trump comes in with the mindset that he can pass a bad bill if he throws in a goodie for, for Missouri, um, if, if, the, if the bill is bad in a national sense and it's bad for a, like a liberal, inclusive vision of society, I don't think Claire McCaskill should support it. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily in conflict with the idea that Democrats in general don't want to grind the government to a halt. They're not going to, um, you know, put blanket holds on Trump nominees. I don't think they're going to, um, you know, try to shut down the government or use the debt limit as as negotiating leverage the way Republicans did. And I and I wouldn't want them to. But but there's a distinction I think between those things, just making it impossible to do the day to day stuff the government does, and you know, not saying I'll I'll vote for an infrastructure bill that's just tax giveaways to uh, to rich people, if you you know build a statue to me in in West Virginia or Missouri or whatever. Do you think where do you what's your gut on where Schumer is? Is this posturing, or do you think he this is the deal maker in him? I don't know. I mean, Schumer's when Pelosi and Schumer made those first statements right after the election, people were horrified to think that they might be like Democrats might be so cowed that they were un, unprepared to. Um, to, you know, take on Trump or accept the reality of what being the opposition uh, in Republican government would be. But, you know, those are two very wily people. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has a lot of experience at this. So does Chuck Schumer. Um, And I I think I think I want to believe that he was just making the smart statement so that the story in the aftermath of the election didn't turn to like Democrats are being spoiled sports about everything. and and the, you know in in reality, when Republicans put that horrible agenda that Paul Ryan has put together uh, through the process, there's not going to be any Democratic votes for it, and Democrats will relish the idea of kind of like bleeding the GOP dry as they try to repeal the Affordable Care Act or privatize Medicare or or whatever. And I just I have not seen a single piece of evidence yet that anything Republicans in Congress or the Trump White House are going to try to do that would require that they're going to propose anything that will have significant amount of Democratic support in general. It's just not in their agenda. I don't see it. The thing that can I say, this is a little disorienting because in my, in my head, uh, speaking to Dan is a thing that I, I do when I'm wearing business attire and 
he's I'm asking him questions <laughs> and he's got a vaguely annoyed look on his face. And that, that, and was, that was largely not at you. <laughs> I know I didn't take Imagine it personally, the, uh, but but that is know. just how I've internalized conversations yeah. with you. And well, uh, and now if, the tables are turning, it feels outstanding. Well, the annoyed for, look for is us, the vaguely annoyed look is still on his face. Just I can't see it either, but you just have to picture that in your head. No, I'm actually sitting. I'm <laughs> sitting it, at my kitchen it. table in my gym clothes with a hoodie on. So uh, it's it's an entirely <laughs> it's an entirely different look. Um, I think Remark- say, remarkably, that's exactly what I'm doing too. Yeah, I just, that's been my large aspiration is to be a progressive columnist. Um, the <laughs> It's a it's a life we all aspire to. the The thing that's interesting about the thing I'm watching with Schumer is is his calculus. You know, Schumer at the end of the day wants to save as many of those red state Senate seats as he can in eighteen. Mm-hmm. It is his view if he can get something that you know a Hyde Camp or a McCaskill. Although I'm skeptical this would happen with McCaskill, a Hyde Camp could vote for with Trump because he's going to have to win over a bunch of people who voted for Trump uh, last month. Or whether it is you know, so, there are two calculus. I thought Jonathan Chay had a good piece of this. One is let's find some bipartisan things for some accom- bipartisan accomplishments for our red state senators. Or it's Chay's view, which is what's going to decide the election is how people view the president, and we should oppose everything and to bring Trump's numbers down. And that'll be the real. That'll be it. Be interesting to watch. Yeah, I mean, I, I I imagine there is there are still some sort of old reflexes from the '90s and the 2000s where. The instinct that party leadership has when they lose an election, um, and then they've got elections coming up where they have uh, members to protect in states that just voted for the other party, is that the other party starts to put together an agenda, and they go to the purple state members from the other party and say, how can we get bipartisan cover for this? What do you need? And I mean, in the end, you know, I think that, that you know Barack Obama and Rahm Emanuel came into the White House, and, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, thinking a similar model might work, that he had just won a big election, he was extremely popular, he was pretty clear about his agenda on the trail, and that he thought he could he could work with somebody like Olympia Snow and get something for Maine, uh, and that that would give him the bipartisan cover he needed for the health care bill, and you know the whole thing would have gone much more smoothly, and that it took a while to recognize that politics, at least in the Republican Party, had kind of changed. And that voters, at least voters in Republican primaries, were not so much interested in what did my moderate senator from the other party bring back to my state, but how tough of a like culture war fighter were they when when you know when they went off to represent me in in Congress? And um, you know, I don't think that that Heidi Heitkamp is going to win a fight like that and save her seat in in North Dakota, but. You know, trying to trying to trying to find a version of the Cornhusker kickback for for her now, I don't think is going to go well either. You know that that didn't work out very well for Mary Landrieu or or uh, Ben Nelson or any of the other Democrats from from tough states who who negotiated deals for themselves to to put into the health care bill. So I, I I think it's like kind of fool's gold if she thinks that's going to be the thing that uh, that that saves her in, in 2018 and, and and all those senators in her position and should. You know, if she wants to do something small and bipartisan on the side of a, a, a you know, the, the main agenda, which is going to be terrible, I don't think Chuck Schumer should like forbid that, and I don't think Mitch McConnell really forbade that either from people like Olympia Snow. Um, but that they were very discerning about the big agenda items and and made them slogs and made them the focal point of of a lot of media attention. And I think I think nothing Chuck Schumer has said thus far makes me think his strategy is going to be incompatible with that. Um, but I, I just, I, I, I guess I need to wait to see what, like, the first things people who are up for re-election in 2018 in tough states start doing in the Senate in January, and then we'll know, like, a, have a clearer picture of what what tone Schumer has set for them. So, so which fights do you think Democrats should pick uh, or focus on? I mean, Trump gives us a million targets every day. Uh, we're going to have Obamacare repeal. There's going to be some kind of tax reform package. There's this infrastructure bill. And then, you know, there's all the nominees who run the gamut from, you know, uh, Mnuchin, who's, you know, a foreclosure expert 
<laughs> and uh, and then we've got like Rex Tillerson, who's got ties to Russia. And then there's God knows what Trump does on national security. There's a Supreme Court nominee. I mean, it, you can see a situation where yeah. January comes and Trump starts doing everything very quickly. And on the Democratic side, on the left, we all feel like we can't back down on any individual fight because the stakes are so high, but then the message gets muddled. And once again, we're all just screaming about Trump every day. <laughs> I'm just trying yeah. to figure out like where, you know, where, where do we focus and where do you, where can you build those alliances both as we were just talking about among some of these red state senators who are, um, who are up for election in 2018 and also fights that they think like reach out to, to Trump voters or at least some, you know, right. Trump voters who are on the fence. I've thought about this from so many different angles because of what you just said, that, that there are so many targets and they, they're so scattered that it might be hard for liberals or for members of the Democratic Party to like focus the public mind on a unifying theme of why Republican rule is bad. And I keep coming back to an article, I think it was in The Guardian, about how, um, how Silvio Berlusconi ended up finally being defeated and it was basically yeah. by ignoring the pomp and the and the corruption and just treating him like a normal politician who wasn't delivering. And I think probably that is the right way to go. And and and, and that means forget Rex Tillerson and focus on Mnuchin. Um, and it means you know even though the corruption in this administration is likely to be mind-boggling, just keep in mind that like it's something that historically voters have been able to overlook if they're being delivered for by the government, you know, and that Republicans went from being like the K street project party to uh, like running Mary Landry out of the Senate on the rail for getting people some health care in Louisiana uh, to now being okay with Donald Trump. So they're, they have made a calculation that corruption is not going to be the thing that hurts them. So even though that's a tempting target, I think that if you're like in the strategic business of trying to beat Republicans, it's probably not, the, the ripest one. The ripest one is going to be just like you said, a, a guy who actually kicked people out of their homes so that he could make money uh, is a, is like a perfect target. And then, um, you know, the fact that Trump ran on not touching Medicare uh, and not leaving people to die in the streets those like those are his words uh, in, in um, uh, you know doing another health care reform. I think that like that is good bread and butter stuff. That millions of people are going to lose their insurance if Republicans even tinker with this thing. Uh, without be, having like a serious alternative in mind. And, you know, just like Social Security privatization kind of ultimately was like a big turning point in the Bush years, I think initiatives like that where it's just clear we you were supposed to be delivering for us and you're actually just delivering tax cuts to millionaires to finance taking health care away from people will, will be will be resonant. Um, but, I, you know, I've written before that in the past when when um, – you know, Democrats have used the Republican agenda as a cudgel against them. Republicans were being more forthright about what they were doing. You know, Bush traveled the country selling Social Security privatization and just wasn't able to pass it. Donald Trump doesn't talk about these issues at all. He he, he bitches on Twitter about whoever's bothering him, and he's going to create a, like a very bright distraction um, from uh, like the hard work of what's going on in Congress. And if there's a way to make sure or to, to you know penalize news outlets that decide to chase that shiny distraction instead of focus on the fact that you know they're going to kick millions of people off of their insurance out of peak, um, then that's going to be important because because we I, I, I can't imagine what ramming through a radical agenda like the ones Republicans have looks like if the media has lost its focus on substantive issues. Because it's our last podcast of the year, we're in a reflective mood today. Um, <laughs> we've actually been in a reflective uh, but depressed mood for about six weeks now. But the um, I noticed what did uh, exactly what like looking back on this year, what did 2016 and what have in this election teach you about politics that you did know before or thought or or that you had wrong? Well, I, uh, you know, I obviously thought uh, Hillary Clinton was going to win, so that was a big miss. Um, uh, <laughs> didn't did think didn't think we'd elect an authoritarian. <laughs> yeah, um, it it. Well, two things. One is that in the next election, like I don't I don't think that there is like a good 
neutral standard. Like anybody who said Trump was going to win, as a like in my line of work, um, can now take a big victory lap. But there, it, it there's no like actual um, like methodological soundness to to how they got to that. It was just wish casting, and they happened to be right. So I don't think like going with your gut or how many like yard signs. Uh, you see in in certain neighborhoods is like any like uh, has suddenly become a valid way to to think about how elections are going. But I will be more attuned to the possibility of big polling failures and that and that I knew that there was a sort of crisis of polling, especially public polling. Um, but I didn't think it was severe enough this year um, to to swing what what looked like it was going to be narrow wins in in you know, four key states and that they would all be kind of linked together. And it, it was only on, on election night when I saw returns coming into the panhandle and how much more turnout there was there than I, than the polling suggested there would be, that there was going to be problems throughout um, the, the upper Midwest. And, uh, and then I realized, okay, like I, that, that reflects some awareness failure on my part. Um, what I've learned since the election is that, and what scares me the most is there is a, I think there's a big crisis in institutions' um, power to hold themselves accountable. Like I, I was never misled into thinking that you know big institutions are great about casting blame inward, um, but everything that has happened since the election has been um, you know members of a particular team projecting blame outward. Um, and in an election this close, I think every person, whatever industry they work in, whatever institution they work for, should be figuring out a way to, to, to make sense of what their particular institution did wrong, right? Like media will say Hillary Clinton ran a bad campaign and the, the Hillary Clinton campaign will say that the media covered the election wrong. And, um, you know, the, the progressive left will blame Hillary Clinton and Hillary Clinton will say, well, you know, you, the progressive left assumed she was going to win and so spent all their time and energy savaging her instead of stopping fascism. And like those were all failures. Um, it's not like it's not like any particular analysis is wrong. Like I think Hillary Clinton made some important mistakes. Like I, I I actually bought into this idea when she was going into Arizona and Georgia that that was a sign that this could be a landslide and beating a fascist in a landslide would would be a positive you know uh, symbol for the world. But in hindsight, that was a failure. She she just needed to win 270 electoral votes. She didn't need to concern herself with expanding the map that way. And when the consequences were so dire, that was a mistake. So they should they should think about that. But people in my line of work should think about why it is that a esoteric infosec, like an email server scandal, loomed larger in people's minds than the the rise of authoritarianism in in America. That's a that was a like a failure in in my industry. And there is almost no self reflection among my peers uh, or other other outlets uh, about how that came about. And, and you know, if, if you want to consider like the, the progressive left, the Sanders supporting left, its own like quasi institution um, that, uh, th- that they like very totally failed to learn the very clear lessons of election like 2000, where, you know, they treated voting as a kind of commodity and, and were, you know, like lost the, Zero sum nature of this that if Hillary Clinton lost, Trump was going to win, and and there would be people would suffer as a result. And I think that like I hope 2017 and 2018, there's a way to uh, like retrain the sites so that uh, so that the, the reflection goes inward and it's not blame casting outward. Um, but uh, I, I didn't realize how how severely limited we we were in our ability to self reflect, and I think that's a uh, it. I think it bodes very badly for the, for the uh, for the Trump years. Um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is I want to close the year on a high point. <laughs> I, I will try to close it on a high note, but with with one last question: what what have okay. you seen over the last couple months since the election that gives you hope that uh, that things might not go quite so badly, or at least that, that there could be a resurgence in maybe 2018 and beyond? Yeah, um, I think that I think that I think that sort of behind the scenes, Democrats are showing that they let party infrastructure atrophy um, during the Obama years, which is not like an uncommon thing for you know the party that controls the presidency. That that I think that just tends to happen, and and they they seem like they're very serious about party rebuilding. So I think that that um, that 
the the odds of another 2010 2014 style wipeout uh, in the midterms is lower for that reason. I, I'm not sure they figured out the, how you turn out young voters during during midterms. Question, but the, but there, there will be better recruitment. There will be you know smarter thinking about how to save vulnerable seats. So so that gives me some hope. Also that that uh, like Republicans don't actually seem to be as on the same page about a lot of the stuff that's been dominating the headlines. Um, as as the media coverage of it suggests, like I, I'm not certain that all these confirmations are going to be as easy as everyone's assuming that that Trump is going to get everyone he picks. You know, like like Obama had to give up a, a handful of high profile nominees for for very trivial issues in comparison to the baggage some of these guys are carrying. And I think Democrats have the capacity as a party to do good vetting of these people in ways that will make them hard to confirm. I think um, Mitch McConnell has been flashing a lot of yellow light about overreach um that that you know that, that there could be a situation like there was in 2009 where you know nancy pelosi passed a robust agenda and a lot of it just kind of withered on the vine it didn't go anywhere in the senate um so the the potential for legislative losses if you're uh, if you're a liberal person are very high but the barriers to passing the republican agenda are very real um and so i have not you know my my like sort of despair after the election was all based on the high tail respect. Like Trump is erratic and dangerous and him being president kind of is, is like a, like higher baseline level of anxiety every day of my life now going forward than I had before. But I, I wasn't, you know, on election night and the next day, I didn't come to the, like leap to the conclusion that everything that Obama had done was going to be erased. Uh, I think a lot of it is, but it might be, it might only be like 30%, which is, uh, you know, that means that, that, the Republicans will have failed to do a lot of the things that they wanted to do, which is, you know, for progressive politics, a good thing. All right. We'll take, we'll take that. I like it. All right. um, Brian, thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. And, uh, and uh, we'll talk to you again in the new year for sure. It, it's been fun. I'm glad we fixed everything. Yeah. <laughs> happy new year. Yeah, we did it. All right. Happy, happy new, new year, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks again to Brian Boitler for joining us. Um, thank you also to all of our listeners for sticking with us through ups and downs in, in 2016. We, we really appreciate you guys. We appreciate your comments, uh, your complaints, your encouragement. Um, it's, it's, it's been really fun. Yeah, when we started this many months ago, we didn't think anyone would listen. So it was just basically just we were calling each other and having a conversation and it's just the people that we have had a chance to interact with and who've reached out to us and, you know, come up to us um, at various places to, you know, to say, to talk about the podcast or talk politics with us has been awesome. And the thing that I was like really moved by was in the run up to the election when everyone would tweet at us, you know, they're, you know, knocking on doors or making phone calls. And like, that's just been like a really awesome thing to be a part of. And, we feel, as we've discussed many times, feel very guilty for telling you not to wet the bed when there are plenty of reasons to wet the bed, apparently. But, um, you know, we are very much looking forward to continuing uh, talking about politics and interacting with all of our listeners um, into 2017. It's been like a yes. crazy, crazy fun adventure if you don't, the fun part if you don't count the election result. Wah, wah. Yeah. We, we <laughs> we will have a lot of new and exciting things to uh to talk about uh in 2017 and uh, and make sure to to find out everything about what we're doing and and all the all the news from us uh, follow us all on twitter too uh i'm at john favs dan's at dan pfeiffer lovett's at john lovett and tommy's at tv tour 08 yeah, what, a, what, a, what a sad, <laughs> guess, what a sad, a, yeah, well, who are the, who, like, are the like, who are the seven like, guys who got tv tour before tommy I did the same thing with my Gmail address, which I was just about to announce, but I'm definitely not going to. <laughs> yeah. I have one yeah, of those reference too. Don't you give email listeners me your cell phone number and address, please do. <laughs> um, thanks again, guys. Uh, have a great holiday and a Merry Christmas. And, uh, and we, will, we will talk to you in the new year. Bye, guys. <laughs>